because today, as we've been, um, as you look through the book of John, today we kind of begin the journey of understanding truly who Jesus is. And we start to read uh, uh, his words to learn about who he is. Not our preconceived notions, not what John the Baptist says about it or anybody else, but his words. Because in our mind, we have certain images um, that we have uh, about him. And what I mean is no matter where we are, we have this image of who Jesus is. Maybe we got it from our mom and dad. Maybe we got it from the church. Maybe we got it from our grandparents. Maybe we got this image from the world. But as we delve into the book of John, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to mold that image into who Jesus truly is. Some things will be confirmed that we know and we understand. We go, yeah, okay, this is a good reminder. I I believe this about Jesus. And there's other things that happen and and, and are said that Jesus says, and and it makes us go, wow, I didn't know that. Or I thought this, so, so really it's this. And we have to allow God to change that image because our image needs to come from scriptures. John is going to tell us a story today about a miracle that Jesus did in a little town of Cana. Jesus is at a wedding, and John is telling the story, and he gives us this wonderful picture of who our Lord is. Can you imagine Jesus at your wedding? Be a little nervous, right? But back then, Jesus hadn't come out in public ministry yet. So he was just some guy at the wedding. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't the Jesus we know, so we have to put our mind there. He shows up, and, and you could imagine the groom looks at the rabbi, and wouldn't you love to be the rabbi that you've seen Jesus come, and you've heard Jesus teach, and you're really intrigued, because Jesus, would, on Sundays, they would have different people share within the church. Um, and maybe we ought to do that more often. We do that with communion, but we ought to have some other people. Anybody else want to volunteer? No, okay, well, we'll work on that. But you could imagine Jesus being there, and, and you know, uh, but, <laughs> so at this wedding, ironically, uh, they didn't know who he was yet. And what Jesus chooses to do at this wedding, <coughs> excuse me, involves his mother. And we have this really weird image of her also, depending on how we've grown up, right? If we've grown up Protestant, or Baptist, you know, Protestant, that kind of, uh, that, that direction, uh, you have one view. If you've grown up Catholic, it's a completely different view. If you've grown up Orthodox, it's a different view. Or you didn't grow up in the church at all. All these images have to be tested from a biblical standpoint. Or, or otherwise, you're looking for Mary or Jesus on a tortilla, okay, or a potato chip. Or on the side of a building. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Anybody, you've seen that in the news where somebody goes, oh, wow, here's, a, here's an image of Christ. And, and you know, it's on some potato chip. And you're just like, what? We've reduced God, the creator of our universe, down to an image on a potato chip. Yay. Right? I mean, come on. If we're not biblical about what we're doing, we're left with these superstitious kind of ideas, and we're looking for him in the wrong places. So we have to really sit down, and we've got to think through these images that we have. We have to study the word as our foundation. So here we go, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and the disciples, uh, Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding 
When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And he kind of gives her that look. And he wasn't being rude, okay? Today, we would take this word to be rude. You know, we'd be like, woman, okay? He's not doing that. It's like saying, mother, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, <laughs> his mother go, oh, well, he's not in a good mood today, never mind. I mean, what are you going to do? He's 30 years old, still living at home or something? I mean, you know, I tried. No, she said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. In other words, she totally ignores him and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So again, washing, washing the hands, or I grew up saying washing, okay? So, this isn't drinking water. This is about 150 to 180 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. Verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from because he probably wouldn't have drank it like I wouldn't have drank it. You know what I'm saying? You got that where out of the wash? Oh, you know. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in, Canaan, in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. This miracle somehow manifested the glory of God to those around. And it caused the disciples to believe. And we know that some of the disciples struggled in believing in him. And this is why, in fact, if you, you read through Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and then you read John, you kind of see these conflicting stories about the calling of the disciples. Where, you know, we read in John that Jesus called the disciples, and, and then we read in another book, and it's a little different. One time it says, you know, he called him at a river. Another time it says it called him at a lake. And, and why is that? We would go, well, that's contradictory. Well, I believe they're both true. I believe these guys had to be called a couple of times. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they still had work. They still had jobs. They weren't fully ready to follow him in a sense. They hadn't become the 12 disciples yet. Some of them hadn't decided what to do. And Jesus comes by and says, he finally goes, hey, you know, I've been asking about you following me. Are you going to follow me or not? You know, now it doesn't really say that in the scriptures, but you could imagine that happening. He goes, do you want to be fishers of men or not? Or do you want to keep pulling these fish out of the river? I know I like, or out of the lakes. I like to fish out of the lake, but I don't know if I'd like to do it every day, especially the way they were doing it with all the nets and everything else. Do you want to be a follower or not? Now, we know that Nathaniel was from Cana. Not sure if this was a connection for this wedding or not. Or it could be the mother, you know, his mother was the reason he, you know, he's at the wedding and she's kind of helping out with the wedding. We don't know. But they come to this wedding and he is watching things unfold. And he is like this in our own lives sometimes. Maybe we don't realize it. 
Jesus just sits back and watches how things unfold. I could imagine him up there with some, some angels going, watch this, Alan's going to screw this up. You know, just with that half smile on his face. Going, I'm going to forgive him, but watch. He has a tendency to do this. But, you know, you could imagine that. Now, a Jewish wedding would typically last for a week. Sorry, uh, you know, any, any parents ready for weddings to last a week? You know, much less the stress of one day. And there was all these things that would happen. So it usually begins on a Tuesday or Wednesdays, and certain things happen at certain times each day. And, and this goes through the Sabbath and usually ends the next Tuesday. So we're thinking this is pretty early in the wedding days, and they ran out of wine. This is a major faux pas. Uh, and Mary somehow feels responsible. And there's a man who's usually in charge of the wedding stuff, and he has no clue what's going on, which is pretty typical for those who are in charge, right? Stuff's going on, people are talking about it, and the person in charge doesn't have a clue. But Mary understands, so she goes to Jesus, much like a, a wife would go to, to a husband, but tradition tells us that he had already passed on. So she goes to her eldest son, Jesus. Now, we don't know if originally... She was asking for a miracle or not. Hey, eldest son of mine, can you solve this problem? We don't know how she was, you know, did she basically say, can you go grab some wine and come back really quick? We don't know exactly. But this couple is going to be terribly embarrassed about this. You see, she was afraid of running out of the wine. Would this couple be remembered for that? Who knows? Don't we always re remember the embarrassing stuff that happens at weddings? Have you ever been to a wedding where something embarrassing happened? It, no one? Okay, one person. Okay, several. Okay. It's called interactive. When I ask a question, you can answer, okay? You can even say amen every now and then. I know, I know. Don't, don't push it too much here. But, but uh, you know, I, I've been at weddings where the groom has fainted. Kind of embarrassing, right? Just all of a sudden, boom. I guess he didn't want to get married. You know, that's the joke, you know. Or the pastor gets tongue-tied. I've done that. I remember a coworker of mine when I was at the Christian college I worked for. And she asked me to, to marry her and, and a young man that actually worked. I worked with her, and this young man worked for me. So I did the wedding in the middle of the ceremony, and this is why I always do notes. And you wonder why I have too many notes? This is why. Middle of the ceremony, I'm talking about both of them, and I'm saying great things about each, about each of them, and I get done with him, and I start talking about her, and my mind goes completely blank, and, and I go, and Cameron, Aaron is so nice. Yeah, I was embarrassed about that. You know, we always remember those things, always. And Mary was afraid that this couple would be embarrassed for this. But this was even more of an embarrassment. This was an insult to the guest. This is an insult to the whole process. Wine represents joy. And, and, and even in our weddings today, we have symbolisms that happen. But a Jewish wedding, everything had meanings. You know, sometime I, I, I've done this before, and sometime we ought to do it here. We ought to have a worship night and run through this. But uh, a Jewish wedding and, and all the symbols that have to go to do with that and how it connects to the Passover and how it connects to, to, to Christ and, and to God, it, it's really a cool thing. 
but everything has meaning. And the wine says to the bride, I've had so much joy in you that I'm taking you as my wife now. So first he's insulting the bride. And then you have all the guests saying to the guests, we have a tremendous amount of joy that you've come to our wedding. And they're also saying, guest, now that we've ran out of wine, you've worn out your welcome. No more drink for you. This is like when relatives come to town. Now, I have some relatives right now that are living at my house, so I'm not talking about them. If they hear this online, I'm not talking about them. We're very happy they moved back from Oklahoma to here. You know, Papa and Mimi are back home. We will do whatever. We're putting our mouth where, you know, we're, uh, yeah, you know the statement. You know what I'm trying to say. So, uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road, we're there. You know, we're happy about that. But this is like when relatives come to town and you forget to go grocery shopping because you've been paying for their food for a month. You know, just forget. And you're kind of saying, okay, it's time for you to, to move on. You know, maybe you've had a young ch- child come back and, and you're like ready to kick them out the door or something like this. So, but, but with Jesus, you have this water setting over there. And there's a reason why they did not drink water. First of all, this is hand-washing water, Right. This isn't the greatest water. Um, it would make them sick. It's safer to drink wine. Now, I'm not saying that today. I'm just saying that was back then, okay? The alcohol content would have been very, very low. Um, uh, getting drunk today, uh, as was back then, would have been very frowned upon. But you run out of wine, it would be to say, we don't care about your safety. Here's a little bit of water that's uh, gross to drink. We don't care about your health. Here, just drink this. I couldn't afford any more wine. So Mary feels for them. It's like she owns the insult. And and just like later on, when she owns the death of her son, she's just that type of person. She just, she feels for that. And everything we see about this lady speaks volumes. And I wish more was written about her. And this is why religion has kind of tried to fill in certain blanks. And it's kind of too bad because a lot of blanks they filled in um, aren't accurate or they're not biblical. And and that's really too bad because she's a wonderful person. As a a young woman, uh, you know, an angel appears to her, you're going to have a son. And the one young woman responds, I'm your servant. Whatever you say. I'll do. I mean, what a woman, you know, I mean, wow. Here's her last words to, that she has for the servants. And she says, do whatever he tells you. What an awesome thing to say. And this also relates to us today. Whatever my son says to you, the next thing he says to you, you do that and watch what happens. That's a pretty cool thing. Now, growing up Protestant, I didn't learn much about Mary. You know, and this was kind of reaction to the Catholics in our area. You know, the, and I don't believe this, but this was kind of, it was not really taught, but it was kind of taught. Anybody but our religion was going to hell. You know what I'm saying? And the Catholics going down the street, they were going to hell because they didn't believe what we believed. Now, I don't believe that, okay? Um, I, I believe that you can be a Christian and be a Catholic. I, I have a lot of issues with that. Um, but being, being a Christian or not a Christian, that's between God and the person. That's not for me to say one way or the other, okay? But this really, you know, it's pretty sad that this happened. 
because the Catholics went overboard in one way, but everybody else went overboard in the other way and ignored Mary. She's an incredible woman. And this is what she says to us today. She doesn't appear in the, you know, in the sky, in the clouds. She doesn't appear in a potato bag. But for us to understand this, her life tells us that do whatever he tells you. Now, would you do that today if Jesus is going to be talking to you in the next 24 to 48 hours? Would you do whatever he tells you to do? Interesting question. Whatever Christ tells you to do, if you're seeking the Lord, confirm it with Scripture. Because, I mean, there's been people say, you know, God told them to do crazy things. And you're sitting there going, well, that has nothing to do with Scripture. God would not tell you to jump off the side of that building. You know, I'm sorry. You're a little Lulu there. That wouldn't go with Scripture. But once something is confirmed, you need to do that. The next thing that Jesus told you to do, and this would be so cool because it would be living what we call a spirit-filled life. That's what Jesus wants us to live. And this is where we see Jesus turn water into wine into our lives because we become a servant of the Lord. So, Jesus asked Mary... And Jesus kind of tests her a little bit. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And the woman, you know, and the woman part sounds really harsh to us, but it's very respectful for, you know, at that time. And this is how, you know, I go to a store today and I, 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 you know, somebody asks me a question and I go, yes, ma'am. And the person behind the, you know, that's checking me out, not checking me out, but you know what I mean, checking me out. Um, she, she'll, just, she'll just look at you like, did you just call me ma'am? Okay, in the South, where I grew up, that was respectful. I didn't say ma'am to my mom. I got knocked upside the head. You know what I mean? The little just whack really quick. Can I remind you, you're supposed to be respectful to your mother? That's what I would get, okay? So this is what he's saying. He's being very respectful to her. But, she, but he's saying, I'm your son, And why are you doing this? And the Lord does this sometimes. Have you ever prayed a really good prayer and you knew it was good? You just felt it was good? It was biblically based? It it wasn't about yourself? It wasn't selfish? And our attitude is, Lord, hello, did, did did you hear that? And sometimes the Lord just stops and says, uh, you're still letting me be in charge, right? And our reaction is to shut down when we should press on. And I don't think we, you know, I don't think we should. uh, The Lord likes to talk to us. He likes to have a discussion with us. He doesn't like this one-sided thing where we just pray and then we just walk or, you know, walk away. See, our prayers have to go further than this. Sometimes God says no, and he means no for now. He doesn't mean no forever. Sometimes uh, no means wait a little bit. Sometimes no means your timing is off on this. And we just go, well, I prayed about it, and nothing happened. Well, if it's something that you desire, keep praying about it. Maybe God's put that desire in you, and he's just waiting for the right time to answer that prayer. And you're going to see the Lord in this book. You're going to see 
we're Jesus, well, we'll just go, man, Jesus, go easy on these people. They don't know who you are. And his responses are going to shock people. And Mary could have been really angry with her son right now. Look, I need you to get out there and I need you to help them. I am your mother. But that's not her reaction. You are the creator of the world. I had to raise you up along with your brothers. Now just show mom some respect and do what I say. Why? Because I said so. She could have been this way, but she isn't. She doesn't completely understand what is about to happen. So she says to the servants, do whatever he says. So Jesus looks around and there's six six stone pots over there, approximately 180 gallons or so. And he's like, well, that'll work. Okay, fill those pots with water. They're not overly huge. They're supposed to be supplying drinks for the whole week. But these are not new wineskins. These are water jugs. And again, these were for for washing feet and hands. These are stone pots. These are not clay pots used for food. These were, you know, they'd put them in the cellar or they'd bury them in the ground to keep them cool. These stone pots were used for religious purification. So what is religious purification? Well, today, if you know any Orthodox Jew or you go to Israel, in all the restaurants that are blessed as Orthodox, you will see a pitcher and a sink for ritual cleaning of the hands. You come into the place, you go to the little sink, you take the pitcher, or somebody takes it and it goes over here, and you ceremonially wash your hands. It's kind of really cool. It's for cleanliness, but it's more than that. They're purifying themselves. They're saying that the the deeds that my hands have done that are not of God are now washed away. So now I can sit down and I can eat God's blessing he has given me in a meal, and it's called a ritual purification. So Jesus takes these pots and does something really weird. He desecrates the pots by putting wine in them. So why does Jesus feel that he has his permission to desecrate these pots? These pots aren't owned by his family. They're, they're, they're owned by usually the whole village. And the rabbi would have been in charge of them. And Jesus is back in the kitchen messing with the rabbi's stuff. Okay, not literally. He has serving, you know, other people are doing it, but he told them to do it. The rabbi is not going to be, you know, not going to be pleased at all when he hears this. The pots have been desecrated. He's not going to go, ah, no big deal. That's just Jesus. He's kind of doing that stuff all the time. No, it was for the bride and groom. He is going to be angry about this. He will have to do a whole ceremony to make these pots uh, back to, uh, to be able to use for ritual purifications. He'll have to spend days in this type of ceremony to, to get these back to where he could use them again. Jesus comes into John chapter 2 and starts messing with Judaism. And he doesn't stop, ever. We've got to figure out now why, or you start to figure out now why they killed him later. Jesus just stomps all over these rituals. And he, doesn't, and he doesn't just do it unintentionally. He intentionally does this. He has a point to make. And, and, and they, his point really is, I'm here now. I am the true rabbi in this building. 
You don't need these pots. You're never going to have to use these things again. You know, all these, all, you can do, all these pots can do is wash your hands, and that's, that's it. They just wash off the dirt. Jesus is saying, in the middle of all the stuff, I'm going to bring you new wine. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to bring change after change after change. And John puts this miracle in the beginning to say, look out for Jesus. He brings real change to the way things work. In the presence, in the middle of Judaism, he starts a thing where, I mean, just wait till a couple of chapters later. He goes into the temple, and you think that he offended the rabbi at Cana. Wait until he offends everybody in the temple. He does this at the beginning, and at the temple, at the beginning of his ministry, and he does it right the last week of his ministry, where he goes in and just destroys stuff. The high priests are unhappy at all. Jesus and the picture John is painting of him is revolutionary. It's radical. It's controversial. But the servants are having a blast because they're witnessing it happening. So what is happening? They take these stone jars and they fill them to the brim. There's no room for, to pour anything into it. They're not mixing anything else into it. Verse 7. Am I on the right slide, Lisa? Okay, good. It says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So what they're doing is they're taking a reed and putting it and drawing out some of the water. And they put, you know, it's almost like a big straw. And they, you know, put their hand on the top so nothing could come out. And they would bring it over, you know, draw it out. And then they would let go and it would fill up these little pitchers. Okay. Um, it, just like we go to the faucet and fill it up, okay? Same concept here. And, and the servant is saying, you want me to take this water, this stuff right here? And it's probably the servants who are in charge of buying the wine, but they take this pitcher to the master of the feast, the master of the ceremonies, and he takes a drink, and what does he say? You said you were bringing me water. No, this stuff is good, Wow. And he doesn't know what's happened. So he walks over to the bridegroom and says, you old dog, you pulled a fast one. You offered the old wine first, and you saved the good stuff for later. People are going to remember this. And the groom's probably just clueless. You know, he's just going through all the stuff, trying to remember everything he's got to say and do and all that. And he goes, you saved the best for last. And Jesus sits over there, and he doesn't say anything. He's probably sitting there thinking, you guys have no clue what just happened. You have no idea what you just said. You saved the best for last. No one knows that this man has just said prophecy. You saved the best for last. Jesus is the best. And there he comes. After religion falls short, after religion ran out, after religion doesn't do the job, I would imagine the whole party came to a stop for a second and everyone would be asking, Why is the ma- what's, what's that master over there saying? What's the master of ceremonies? What's he over there talking to the groom about? They just put out what? The best what? So many of us become believers in Jesus and after everything else has ran out, when the wine has ran out and what we were, you know, what we were doing and our lives were about, it ran out. And whoever you were trying to be, when the game was over, that is when Jesus came to your party. 
Jesus comes along and says, you know what? According to John in chapter 2, when you ran out, I'm going to be there. When you run out trying to do life yourself, I'm going to be there. When you run out of trying to do it with your own energy, I'm going to be there. And there are people who will see the miracle of your life, and they will notice. Who saw the miracle here? The master of ceremonies? The groom? No. The servants saw the miracle. Mary was just doing what is godly. This is like a, like a prayer. We need to recognize what is happening around us, and we need to go to Jesus. And Jesus is, you know, the, the wine is almost out, and Jesus says, well, let's do something about that. But the problem is, most of us are sitting there watching and cracking up laughing, making snide comments or whatever, instead of trying to figure out how to, how to get Jesus into the middle of the situation. Have you ever been there where you're sitting there going, oh, man, this is going to be fun to watch? Or is that just me? I just have that kind of mind, not you? <laughs> the ones who prayed and the ones who served and the ones who saw the miracle, those, th that is encouraging for us. So many times you've probably asked Jesus to see a miracle. You want to see a miracle? Then start asking Jesus. Ask for a miracle in the middle of things, even when you don't know how it's going to end. And number two, be in the kitchen when it happens. You've got to be around. Did you catch that? Because so many of us sat back and go, oh, Lord, bless our life. Bless this life. And we sit there with our cup of wine, and we're just happy. When we could be back there serving, we could be back in the kitchen going, pour another pitcher. Wow, look at this. Wine's coming out of this. This isn't water. Can you believe this? 180 gallons of the best stuff, the best stuff that was ever tasted. This is the servant of God. This is the church of God. New wine is being poured into fellowship of God. And we need to be involved in that. Why are we involved? Because we're servants. We're on our feet. We're doing something. That's it. We need to get excited about this. But Lord, I don't have many abilities. I can't do anything. How much ability does it take? I mean, some places serving God, it takes a little bit more than others, right? But I mean, think about it. Attitude is more important than abilities. It's your willingness to be in the kitchen. It's your willingness to, to help out with the kids. It's your willingness to do whatever it is. You know, it's, it's cool that he let them do something, but it's really cool when God lets us be involved. When we start to have our little part into whatever it is, and people come along and say, man, you had a big part in this, and we're like, not, not really. I mean, it may seem like that, but I didn't do jack. I mean, that was, the Lord did everything. See, our parts are usually little. Our parts are usually just carrying the jug or just filling it with water or just serving it out. Those are the parts, but it makes up a huge hole. You know, this, it, it fills the need. And we need to look around and say what is needed. Wow, the party is almost out of wine. Jesus, help us with this. And then we need people who are willing to be the helpee. Jesus came to solve this. You know, it was a mess, but the Lord was there, and he, and he healed the whole thing. Now, what's amazing to me is that he even cared enough to do this. I mean, he's the creator of the universe, right? 
Who cares about one little wedding of two people who are getting married, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, our lives are huge because everything revolves around us, right? Our little world, you know? Or again, or is that just me? My little world, right? And, and it's so huge when it happens just, but in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things and all the people, all the billions of people who have been born and died over the, you know, since the creation till now, how insignificant is our life? Yet Jesus cares for us. Jesus cared enough for this couple to help them out for their wedding. It's funny how self-important we feel sometimes instead of just enjoying things. The creator of the universe went to a friend's wedding. I mean, how cool is that? God shows up. And he comes down, and he shows up, and he celebrates with them. And this is the thing about, uh, that I love about Jesus. Jesus is, not a, a, you know, Jesus is not just our, I'm in a crisis, God, I need your help right now. He shows up to the wedding. It's not just to call me when you need me, Jesus. He's a show-up kind of guy. He's involved in our lives. Jesus wants to be involved in our everyday life. Every day. You know, I want to point out one thing. This is not about a good angel on our shoulder and a bad angel on our shoulder, right? No, Alan, don't do this. Alan, this is going to be fun. Go for it. Okay, that's not how it is. God wants to be a part of everything. He wants to celebrate with us just as much as he wants to correct me when I do something wrong. God wants to do new things amongst us. He wants to turn ordinary things in our life into the biggest thing that has ever happened. One thing that I really didn't go into today is, is how this also represents uh, Israel, about how they were supposed to be pure. How, how the water jugs were, they were blessed and they were used for purifying things. They were supposed to show God's blessing on the world and then purify the world. And instead, they were just like the world. And Jesus comes along and turns them into what is supposed to be righteous. And he turns them into the best thing ever. Jesus come along and you know, changed the, the ordinary things into holy things. We're supposed to want to live holy lives, ones that are pleasing to God, ones that are pleasing to him. And with his help, he pours that holiness into us. And the world looks at us and says, wow, they either have a good reaction or they have the opposite reaction. What's the opposite reaction? They attack you. Oh, you think you're a Christian? Let me tell you, you're acting like this. You're doing this. And really, it's an attack of the devil upon our lives. This is an attack from the enemy trying to wear us down and not have us be holy in our lives. Sometimes reaction is this, though. Something happens, God gets in the middle of it, and they're like, hey, guys, come here. Have you tasted this? Have you, do, do you see what's going on here? This is the best. And this is how he wants to use us today. He can take our everyday life, our everyday situations, your everyday whatever you do, and turn it into something great. All you have to do is be like the servant and do everything or whatever 
he tells us to do. You see the point? What would have happened if the servants would have sat back and gone, we can't touch those. The rabbi, those are the rabbis. We can't touch the. What do you mean put water into that and we're going we're gonna to turn in the wine? That's not used for that. How many of us have had the attitude of we sit back and we just go, I'm not going to do that. Maybe we don't admit it. I don't know. But I think we've all been there. And Jesus is saying, just follow me. Whatever it is I ask you to do, just do it. You won't even believe the miracle that's going to happen. You can't even fathom it when I'm involved in your life. And that's what he wants. He wants to be involved in our life. Period. So then we have the chance to respond. Lord, are you going to be involved in my life? And he goes, yeah, I want to be. And then we have to allow that room to open for him to come in and be involved in it. That's the miracle of Cana. Well, let's stand and pray as the worship team comes and leads us out with a wonderful song. Lord, we, we thank you for this miracle. We thank you for that, that you're showing us how you're involved in our everyday life. You're a God who shows up. You're a God who's willing to be there and, and love us and be involved in our life and, and not just we become a Christian and you say, okay, there you go, go. And we're all, off on our own. You like the everyday life. You like the everyday miracle. And when we allow your miracles to begin in our lives, amazing things can happen. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may you open your life to his miracles. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.